Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, I'm continuing our aspiring intellectuals uh, coverage. As you may know, this is a special coverage where uh, I and my friends as aspiring intellectuals uh, interview some of the actually great intellectuals of our world. And today I'm very honored to welcome a great normative thinker from Harvard. His name is Matthias Risse. He is Lucius and the Tower Professor of Philosophy and Public Administration at the Kennedy School in Harvard University and the director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard. His, he researches questions of global justice in a wide range of topics like human rights, inequality, uh, taxation, trade, immigration, climate change, and very recently, technology, artificial intelligence. Uh, he focuses on what he coins as uh, the big questions of political and moral philosophy and looks at uh, normative claims in the current time uh, of more political and economic connectedness. So, Professor Heza, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, and co-hosting the show with me is uh, our team member, Marko Petrovich, uh, who uh, is uh, also very into politics, policy, and a lot of those normative issues. So, Marko, thanks for co-hosting the show with me. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Professor Heza, maybe we can uh, jump right in. Uh, you've written many books. I have one here with me uh, on global justice. Uh, you've recently, uh, after that, you released on trade justice, and very recently you released on justice. So uh, you've said in previous interviews before that a lot of your book titles has the words on and justice in them. So uh, maybe we can start by uh, defining what justice is. Yeah, thank you, thank you for that, Tiger. Uh, and uh, and indeed, it uh, it it, it, uh, it might look uh, mildly comical that I keep writing books with the with the words on and uh, and justice in them. Uh, but there there was a certain logic to this particular uh, progression uh, of, uh, of of books. But hopefully, I'm I'm now at the point of actually moving beyond that. So, um, what is justice? So, uh, the uh, the way I think about justice uh, is as follows. So, there is there is um, uh, there is things that we do together as human beings in society. We are creating, we are, we are building, maintaining, producing things together. Um, and, you know, by that, I mean both material objects, but also relationships and, you know, the kind of thing that, that constitutes society, that constitutes our living arrangements. And then there's questions about how to, how to make sure that everybody has an, an appropriate share in that, right? an appropriate standing in uh, in uh, what the this distinctively human ability for cooperation has enabled us to to build and maintain and uh, and produce and and that's what justice is about is to make sure that everybody has an appropriate uh, place in that um, so that's kind of the idea of justice where then a lot of space for disagreement would come in and a lot of space for philosophical theorizing by thinking about exactly what an appropriate space like that would be right so what does this amount to is and you know all sorts of questions about specifying this in more detail what i just, just sketched in a very abstract way but that's roughly the idea behind justice is that the main bulk of work that, <clears throat> that you study so I, I guess another big broad question is uh, who did, who is mm -hmm. matthias Hesse? what does he study uh, over the years <laughs> how has your research interests uh, evolved Okay, so let me then, then take a step, step back from that, maybe just in terms of how I ended up coming to write books like that. So I, uh, I grew up in, in Germany, so I came to the United States uh, only at the, at, the, at the stage of, uh, uh, of PhD program. 
And when I grew up, I, uh, it turned out so I kind of, you know, made self-observations about what it was that interested me. And there were basically two, two lines of work or two lines of thinking, uh, two lines of engagement that I was very interested in. And one was the actual practice of politics. So being engaged politically, doing things politically. Um, so I thought that maybe running for something in the domain of politics uh, might be a way to go. And the other one was uh, basically what then you would want to classify as philosophical questions, theoretical questions, more somewhat detached questions that arose in, in the political process. So questions about how should we fairly live together? What, what would justice be? What kind of society would we want? So they, these questions have been actually on my radar fairly early on. And so in a way, going into political philosophy was a natural course of direction. And then fast forward uh, a number of years. So once basically, in a way, I'd gone through the motions of academic degrees and 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 uh, and early career um, stages and was at a point where I could actually articulate um, my own voice on develop my own voice on something. That's when I started with this book on on global justice and uh, which to some extent also was responsive to things that were going on in the literature around political philosophy and and wanted to offer a basic understanding of you know as we are thinking about justice at this large scale at the global scale uh, how could we think about that in comprehensive but also differentiated ways keeping nuance and respecting that people are in a lot of close to home sort of relationships that do live in countries. And that's not just an arbitrary fact, but it kind of defines our world. But then there's also there's also a global context. We we have we we are all partaking of a common humanity. We are living on the same planet. We have trade relations. And so I, I tried to articulate a version of what justice amounted to at the global level that was in comprehensive by taking all of that seriously without losing uh, the nuances of that. So that's how I. Uh, that's that's how originally I came to the to this book on uh, on uh, global justice. I could continue and connect it to the other two books, but maybe I'm just going to pass it back to you at the stage. No, please. I think it would be great to to continue. I guess just giving our listeners a general idea the the few books mm. you've written and their connections. Um, mm. Before we diving into okay, so so then so then maybe one level more specific about on global justice. So what I'm proposing there is uh, is an understanding of uh, of global justice that operates with the notion of grounds of justice. And so the, the the idea is that there is a number of these grounds, a number of different contexts in which respectively different principles of justice are operative. So. Um, the shared life in a state is one context of justice. It's one context where we are doing something together, building something together, uh, such that this question about an appropriate place arises. You know, so shared membership in a state then is one such ground of justice. But at the same time, we have a shared context of humanity. So the fact that we are all human beings creates certain kind of demands on us that is also um, that can also be sensibly captured under, under a somewhat broader understanding of what justice is. So justice, the, as I defined it earlier in terms of sharing out what we do and produce together, but it's also part of a, an overall cooperative scheme that, that we are capable of pulling off because we are humans. And so we have a certain, we have a certain kind of, we have certain kind of personalities, a certain kind of distinctive life. And that distinctive human life is itself then also 
something that generates obligations of, uh, of justice. So it's another ground of justice. We owe each other things because uh, we, we are human. So that's my second ground of justice. Uh, and then I have, uh, and then I have three others. One of them is uh, the trade context. So we are engaging with each other in uh, trade relations, and trade has always made the world. Trade is incredibly important. So trade is also one of these contexts uh, where we need to think about how to share things out appropriately, how to define a particular space and that overall context for people. So that's ground three, and then. Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the other two are uh, the uh, a membership in what I call the uh, what I originally called the global political economic order, or what more recently I've called uh, the world society. It's it's a term that I've borrowed from uh, sociology that uh, that the overall human the, the the connectivity that we have as humans on this planet can be captured in terms of uh, uh, world society. Uh, so that's a fourth ground of justice. And then uh, the fifth and final ground of justice that I distinguish is uh, humanity's collective ownership of the, of the earth. So the idea that uh, there's this planet that, is in, that enables everything that we do, that is a precondition for everything that we do. And just like shared humanity as such, the enabling condition of this planet should also be recognized as an additional ground of justice. So that gives me these five grounds of justice and each of these contexts, I think, uh, about each of these contexts, one can motivate fairly straightforwardly why this idea of justice as sharing out what our distinctive human capacities, um, cooperative capacities enable us to do. Why? Why? Why that should? Why that needs to be investigated for those particular contexts? It gives it gives you a little bit of a messy theory of global justice. Right? It comes from these multiple grounds. There's no reason why it would have to be five. In principle, there could be more, but it's a, it's a, there's a certain messiness to that. Uh, and in that sense, it is um, you know it is less tidy than the major competing views here. The major competing views are a what's called a statist view, which is the idea that you really need to share a state, you need to be in a state together to be connected in ways that make principles of justice applicable. So you and I are only together under principles of justice if we actually share membership in a state and to people outside of the state, we might also owe something, we might have obligations to them, we do have obligations to them, but there would be something else, right? There would not be obligations of justice. And that's a, that's a statist view. You can see that's neater because it confines justice to states. And the other opposing view that's also neater is a cosmopolitan view that says, well, one way or another, uh, principles of justice apply only to the global context, right? Either because we are human or because we have these global structures. So, but they only apply globally and states really are, you know, they're just kind of an, uh, at worst an obstruction and at best an administrative scheme to administer these things. So, so the statist and the cosmopolitan view have these virtues of simplicity, straightforwardness. My grounds of justice view is a bit of an intermediate view. Um, so it is messier as an understanding of global justice, but I think it has the virtue, the competing virtue there of being more comprehensive and allows us to capture, um, suitably capture a broader range of things under the heading of justice. Professor Riza, your work deals heavily with the question of what it means for distribution to be just globally. To answer this question, mm. you developed the view called pluralist internationalism. Could you mm. elaborate 
on this position and what it means for a distribution to be just and how does pluralist internationalism intersect with distributive justice? Yeah, so uh, actually, uh, thank you for that, Hubert, and that actually I forgot earlier, so I didn't really come to the other two books, but let me actually use that, the, the keyword pluralist internationalism here to, to do that. So the view that I just sketched, this particular understanding of these five different grounds of justice, I call pluralist internationalism, uh, and I do so because the term internationalism itself uh, is capturing the idea that we are operating in, in a world of states. You know, so the world that we currently have and the world that we have for the foreseeable future is one that's very much uh, designed, shaped by, uh, by states. So that's why internationalism, the recognition of the relevance of states and, and the relevance of states, not just as, uh, not just as kind of accidents um, and that don't really matter from a, from a standpoint of justice, but as a kind of context where we are so intensely connected to each other uh, that uh, they deserve to be taken seriously as definitely as, as one ground of justice. So there's something very morally significant about shared membership in states. So there is something more and something distinct that we share as fellow participants in a, in a particular state than what we have with other people. At the same time, what we have with other people also is comes up for consideration and justice in its own way through, uh, for example, through the through trade, through participation in world society, which brings in human rights. Um, so that's that's what pluralist internationalism about. Then, just briefly about the the the, the two other books. Um, so um, so after I wrote Global Justice on Global Justice, it um, various things became clear. You, well, for, you, you can imagine this is, um, you know, if you write a book under such an ambitious title, it's pretty clear that there's follow-up agendas, right? This should not should not come as a surprise that there would be follow-up agendas. And one follow-up agenda was that uh, the book didn't really say enough about trade. So trade, I discussed trade there, and I'd written a number of earlier things about trade, um, but there was more to say about trade. And at that time, also other people had started to work on trade. So there was a bit of a scene also emerging that philosophers took trade more seriously. And then I ended up thinking about um, rethinking this whole area of, the, of trade with uh, a very talented uh, colleague uh, based in Germany named Gabriel Wollner. And so um, we together worked on this, on, the, on this next book on trade justice. And from my point of view, so from the point of view of the kind of theory that I'm, I've been building there, this is an elaboration on that one particular ground since trade turns out to be such a vexingly complicated topic. So in a way it merited its own, its own book project. Um, but then the, um, the so then the, the, the so that, that, that was the second book and the third book that just came out uh, in late 2020 then is called On Justice, Philosophy, History, Foundations. And you might say, well, why, why does anybody need to write a book called On Justice after you wrote these other two called On Global Justice and On Trade Justice? And the reason for that is so they just like the so the trade justice book is an elaboration of one ground. And the uh, on justice book is kind of giving the, the bigger, the bigger umbrella of the, the bigger envelope uh, for uh, for this whole undertaking. So um, so it's it's basically a response to an objection. You know why why should anybody why why is your way of thinking what does your way of thinking about justice why how does this relate to what other people have discussed in this space why is this a natural development of what other people have done and you know to some extent of course the earlier work does discuss this but then 
um, you know, I was specifically working with this question. So what if people say, look, uh, here's what I mean by justice and, you know, yes, you mean something else, but why do you have a specific entitlement to calling your theory? Why does, what, does, what makes this a theory of justice and yours is more sensible in that regard as a continuation of the broader discourse on justice that we have had in history than anybody else's? And, um, and then I thought, okay, so what, um, what needs to be needs to be done here is to you know especially once we talk about the global context and we want to make sure that you know talking about global justice is not always us over here talking about other people elsewhere we need some kind of combining story a unifying narrative or we at least want to look for one and see whether there is one whether there is a unifying narrative about justice uh, across history, across cultures, where we say, well, somehow there is a reason why this term gets translated from Mandarin into English and it, it's translated as justice, or maybe there's some issues with translation, but you know, there is something recognizable there. Uh, and similarly for other cultures, right? And so I, uh, the heart of that book is really uh, that I tell a historical, and to some extent also deep history, evolutionary story, where in the distinctive trajectory of the human species actually this justice thinking comes from, that we care about sharing things out that our collaborative efforts make possible. So I trace that in a kind of an evolutionary story. And then I kind of look how this has developed and I tell a bit of a story. You know, it's not a terribly neat story. It's definitely not what's sometimes called wick history where you're just looking at the present and then everything falls into place. It's just kind of looking at what has emerged over over the uh, millennia in justice discourse and kind of bringing that into a unified story where then I'd say, you know, many of the, the components that I see at play where it makes sense to say, this is what a good theory of justice for the 21st century is, they actually come, I can trace them, I can find them developing in the history of political thought such that then I can sensibly claim that my story with its different components actually is a, you know, more sensible, more natural, more continuity generating perpetuation of those efforts than what others are kind of establishing the credibility of my approach in the larger discourse on justice. That's the core. Um, but that then, that then also did mean, um, that also did mean that I needed to um, um, uh, think more about what it actually, what, what are we actually doing as political philosophers in the first place, right? So this was also one line of criticism. So how dare you, who are you to write down what we mean by justice, right? So that also that needed to be articulated, various ways of understanding about what political philosophy is. And so I start with that and I come up with, a, with an understanding of what political philosophy does in the first place and also suitably moderate humble so we are you know we are we are not pretentious so right? we're not presumptuous that right? we are contributors to a certain kind of discourse so i kind of explained that then there's my historical narrative about how uh, where my own approach from on global justice fits in and then there's a third part that offers some more analyticism it's the analytical part that offers some more analytical um sophistication to the to some of the details of the grounds of justice so more for professional colleagues who say, yeah, but how about this and how about that? And what are the foundations? What is the rigorous take on that? So there's a whole part on, 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 on that uh, also. Yeah. Now, if you're then asking me, so what specifically does justice require? So in a way you wanna make it more concrete. So 
Um, so in a way, the most straightforward cases, uh, you know, if we, start, if we start with states, right? So <clears throat> that's also where I'm myself not terribly original because as far as states, um, so my, my originality to the extent that it ex exists comes in, I think in developing and an, what I think is an overall plausible global structure for the domestic case, I'm actually borrowing quite substantially from a Harvard predecessor named John Rawls. Yeah, so John Rawls, who will be a name to many of people who listen uh, to this, who uh, wrote a, a very pathbreaking book called Theory of Justice that came out in the early 70s. And he formulated a particular vision of uh, justice for the domestic, uh, for the domestic case, which combined ideas about protection and prioritized protection of civil and political liberties with ideas of uh, fair equality of opportunity, especially in the domain of education, and also with ideas about restrictions on inequalities in societies where these inequalities should be restricted in such a way that inequalities are permissible, but only to such an extent that it's really helping everybody, including the least advantaged in society. So I, I think that's, that is pretty plausible um, uh, for domestic cases. And then these other grounds that I'm having are adding respectively different uh, principles of justice on their own, right? So for example, uh, in, the, in the case of the world society or global political economic order, that's where we're getting to human rights. You know? So, so um, humans related at, in that kind of structure, um, they, there is as a matter of justice, certain things that we owe to each other, human rights come in this way. In the trade domain, that's, that's where we have ideas about exploitation, right? So trade needs to be organized in certain ways. Uh, as far as the collective ownership idea is concerned, there has to be kind of a fair sharing out of the spaces of the earth. You know? so, so, each, so in this way, each of these grounds generates its own sets of principles, and then you know, they're all there. And when it comes to particular scenarios where we are thinking about all of this, then the question is, you know, which of these grounds does that scenario bring in? So that would be a way of approaching problems like that. You know? Uh, Professor Hayes, there's so much to unpack, but uh, perhaps we can go over uh, one person's theory first, which is John Rawls. Uh, as you said, mm -hmm. he famously wrote a theory of justice, which uh, mm -hmm. not only influences political thinkers, but also economists. I, I know many economists who still today uh, mm -hmm. think about the issues of redistribution and equality mm -hmm. of outcome versus equality opportunity from, from there. So uh, your recent work on justice really begs the question of, what the role of philosopher is. And in your very recent book talk that Marco and I listened to with Harvard Bookstore, you mentioned that this movement in philosophy departments to critique the work of John Ross for his lack of minority presence uh, and to, apply, mm -hmm. and to a, try to apply the Rawlsian framework to topics like racial justice and gender equality. So uh, I, I guess mm -hmm. two big questions here. One is, who is John Ross for, for a lot of our, our listeners? Mm -hmm. into, what, what does he believe in? And also, uh, how have you uh, tried to adapt his framework into issues today, as you just mentioned? So uh, John Rawls uh, was, um, was um, a pathbreaking philosopher who died in 2002, lived from 1921 to, uh, to 2002 for much of his career, was here at Harvard University. Uh, I belong to a generation, so I've never met him in person. He actually died within a couple of months, a few months of my coming to Harvard. Um, but, you know, people kind of, you know, above me in seniority, you know, they have also been very personally influenced by him. So 
So Rawls um, wrote his book, published his book on uh, called the Theory of Justice in in the early 70s, and um, and it was a it um, the way I think about the the historical significance of of that book is uh, is roughly as follows. So we um, we 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 have had a we have had a recognizable notion specifically of social justice uh, only really since um, since the beginning of the industrial revolution, right? And the term social justice. Uh, comes up for the first time really only in the 19th century. And um, before that, there were other ways of thinking about justice, but that that now we were talking about social justice uh, was paying homage and giving recognition to the fact that societies had become immensely interconnected, the kind of division of labor uh, that, that became possible through the Industrial Revolution. Uh, created just a lot of a lot of interconnectedness. People one way or another depending on each other, um, and so it's it's for this kind of interconnected society that 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 new kind of questions about distribution, fair space, fair fair sharing arose, and this was also a kind of society that uh, enabled new kind of administrative capacities, right? So like the administrative state as we know it emerged in the course of the 19th century. So justice also was something a fair sharing out of of a place in society. Was something that actually became doable, right? It was not just a, you know a pipe dream, a theoretical construct, but we actually had professionals who, in principle, could be doing that, and you know one could have a systematic discussion about that with decent understanding, also what the empirics were, what the data were, and so that was a totally new situation. Social justice is a is a concept that came up at this time, and there were a lot of ideas about that, right? So a lot of um, really from from uh, you know utilitarian, so all, all sorts of philosophical schools come up. Utilitarianism comes up at the stage and says, you know, let's maximize well-being. Marxism comes up at the stage and says, well, there's this deep class antagonism all over the place, and that's where you should be writing the show. There's very merit-driven ideas, very needs-driven ideas. So it's the 19th century is incredibly interesting uh, for political philosophy, and it kind of goes into the 20th century, and then you know, bad things that the kind of bad things at a large scale happen in the 20th century. So you know, these debates get derailed, and uh, and so in a way, longer is a longer story here. But but Rawls, Rawls is somebody who looks back at all of that, and he looks at all these debates and these various criteria. And when he is formulating these two principles of justice that I alluded to earlier, you know, with the protection of rights and the ideas of fair quality of opportunity and and um, and uh, the regulation of inequality. So the Rawls writes this down fairly neatly as two principles, and the second one as A and B. So it's a bit complicated to it's not not I mean happy to recite them to you also. But you know it's kind of it's better to think of them as along these ideas that I just gave you. So he wrote that, and these two principles captured a number of these ideas criteria that had been discussed in, in these two hundred years leading up to him. Right. So it's kind of a cornerstone of these debates about social justice, bringing them to a new level of abstraction um, and thereby really kind of forming this grounding for future debates. And, and you know, he, he set an agenda doing that and a lot of people moved into this and, and, and both, you know, and enlarging what he had started and also criticizing, pushing back. And, and among the pushbacks, and, and especially also in, in recent times, is uh, is is um, is is a, 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 a so this is undertaken. This particular one is undertaken by a group of very important thinkers. Most important among them, Charles Mills at um, uh, City University, New York, 
uh, who say, look, uh, there's a, there's something that they, this, this whole, this, the, 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 that Rawls actually was operating in a deeply racist society, that there's racial injustice is something that just doesn't register much here, right? He doesn't talk about that, right? He doesn't acknowledge that as a, as a, as a topic, uh, as a, as a topic for political philosophy. So there's something badly missing, and then we have this whole debate there. Um, so nobody will deny that it's missing, but the question is, how bad is it that it's missing? As in, you know, is there a straightforward way? Is there, you know, is can it be added, you know, in a reasonably straightforward way? My colleague here at Harvard, Tommy Shelby, argues that right that there's no, in principle, hostility. It's just, you know, it's just not, it's not there. It wasn't, you know, actually on his radar as a subject for political philosophers. But now that it is on our radar, we can add it. We can use the Rawlsian framework. And then there's other voices who, uh, you know, are not so sure, and they and they feel like, uh, you know, this whole the prominence of of Rawls uh, is just one symptom of how this whole discourse of political thought has been for too long dominated by white people who were just not sensitive to white men specifically, who were just not sensitive to the concerns of anybody else. In, in light with that question, um, how have you seen philosophical scholarship change over recent years as they become more aware of the gap within these foundational theories like John Rawls's? Um, and have you seen that any have been actually disproven because of their absence to consider things like racial justice and gender discrimination? Yeah, so first of all, I. Um... Let me say, I, I think these, these the, the, in essence, these critical uh, takes on, uh, on philosophy are, uh, you know, utterly justified, um, uh, especially on political philosophy. So if you, uh, if, if you look over recent centuries, so the, which have also been the centuries of uh, European colonialism, later imperialism, um, you know, these were, the, the, these were centuries when the, the tradition of Western philosophy was largely driven by people who were also engaged with the justification of colonialism. There's occasionally also people who resist that, uh, but it's very much a political discourse in countries that were very actively engaged in colonialism. And many of our, you know, the greats of political thought are, you know, either callous to that, don't care about that, or are actively supportive. Again, there's also exceptions, but so clearly as we, as we think about the global context, uh, there is this colonial legacy uh, I think the field generally has done, and, and there was also, by the way, there was also during that time, there was also beginning in the 18th century, there was a, um, a very deliberate attempt also at, at um, constructing the historiography, the historical self-understanding of philosophy as a field. And it was basically more or less defined in such a way, or the, the, the history was told in such a way uh, that uh, that only if you were in the tradition of Greek thinking uh, were you actually doing philosophy properly understood, right? That had to be somehow your tradition line. Uh, other than that, if you came from some other part of the world, you belong to some other tradition, you might be engaged in religious thinking, some some you know mysticism, whatever, but it's not philosophy proper, right? So that was the that was a and this self-understanding, this historical self-understanding of philosophy, I think has endured quite a bit. And then also does this de facto legacy that of what the agenda specifically of political philosophers was, right? And so, and then you know, this white men phenomenon had, you know, had this had this additional effect of you know feminism concerns, they weren't on people's radar and racial concerns. And I think. 
and you know that also is reflected in uh, in rather severe sociological problems in the field. So who goes into these fields, right? Who is going after PhDs in philosophy? Who feels comfortable in philosophy departments? And um, it is due to the work of people like Charles Mills and others that in the last decade or so, we, the, the field has started to do this, to, to tackle these issues in earnest and has you know, taken, taken note of these neglected areas much more, has, has seen also Western philosophy as embedded in and related to larger contexts in a way what I myself am trying to do for justice discourse is happening in other places in philosophy that people really see philosophical discourse as a genuinely global endeavor. So it is changing, but you know, it takes time because you know, of course, a lot of people, senior people in the field who are shaping the field, that has not been part of their outlook, right? And so change here is coming slowly, but I think we are, we are, you know, we are, we are doing, we are doing this work, even though much clearly that's remained to be done. Uh, Professor Hesse, maybe just to quickly follow up a little bit more on this this topic. Uh, so in the book on justice, you explain the narrative uh, of justice has been enlisted by powerful and corrupt uh, throughout mm -hmm. history for their own purposes. You, you give the example of the mm -hmm. platonic slogan to each their own co-opted by the Nazis. Uh, so how yeah. can dialogues about justice avoid these kind of nefarious co-options and how do we put these conceptions in, into practice? As you put it, how can we ensure that the perspectives of justice is always uh, the perspective of the downtrodden, basically? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the the larger context there is, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of philosophers um, uh, in, the, in the at the contemporary stage of thinking are actually saying, you know, let's not let's let's not talk about justice. Let's not do theories of justice. Let's not let's not theorize the concept of justice. Let's think about injustice and let's think about specific instances of injustice. Let's work with that. And um, and uh, they have a number of reasons for for that. And uh, among them is also this idea, you know, justice talk gets so gets appropriated and so you know, and especially. Uh, you know, this particular Greek slogan here that justice is to is for each to do their own right and uh, and that of course was notoriously um, uh, and, uh, and, uh, um, appropriated by uh, by the Nazis right to use that as a concentration camp uh, uh, slogan to each their own right and and to which, which they meant some people needed to be you know deserved to be treated uh, in terms of concentration camp um, uh, you know, to be to be sent to concentration camps, and so yeah, there is this, there is this, there is always this appropriation, right? I mean, this is something you know that the the relationship between political thought and power is a precarious one, right? For much of history, you know, you couldn't really publish things unless somebody in power was actually supportive, right? So that's already one symptom as to why a lot of political philosophy was produced in ways that that uh, at least didn't rub the powerful uh, too too negatively. So. So the political philosophy has always had this uneasy uh, relationship with power as in the powerful were always eager to have acolytes who justified the, what they were doing and offer theories to do that. And, um, and so um, I would not say that this fact that there is this precarious relationship between, so this, this often too close relationship between uh, the powerful and the people who theorize power, that that's a reason not to theorize power and therefore not to theorize justice. We just, we just constantly have to be mindful uh, of the fact, um, you know, that we have to keep in mind the 
the serious purpose of this language, right? And the serious purpose of this of the language of justice is really to pay attention to everybody's appropriate place. What does everybody deserve is also the focus of the human rights language, and especially always the people most likely to lose out, right? The downtrodden in society. And of course, that also has a sociological implication, right? So for us, as we are, you know, academics at uh, major universities, or you guys are students at major universities, right? We there's always a danger that we are just talking to each other, right? And that we are, you know, just by creating this discourse, you know, with each other and the chumminess with with each other, that thereby we are also, even though we're not thinking actively like that, but effectively we are also getting co-opted to power, maybe not to particular, uh, you know, monarchs. Uh, you know, but but we are still in a in a in a kind of higher sphere sort of bubble, and we are not appropriately responsive to the, and 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 that's just, but that's not a reason, not a reason not to think about justice. It's just a reason to constantly remind ourselves that there is a lot of ways of going astray, a lot of ways of being led into temptation, and you know, not pay attention to the people who uh, matter. You know. Uh, I think a natural extension to the debate of justice would be human rights, and which is another. Mm -hmm. Uh, something very close to your heart. You uh, are the director of the Carr Center for Human Rights at, at Harvard. And mm -hmm. so, so as, as we talk about the issue of human rights, obviously the, the first things we think about are uh, some of the uh, a sort of a, abuse of human rights in, develop, in developing and underdeveloped countries uh, across the world. But uh, there are also, I guess, other forms of, of human rights debates that are happening in the, in the Western world, in the developed countries where we probably don't see sort of outright genocide or something, but there are other forms of uh, human rights debates that are happening. So uh, would you mind giving us some kind of overview of some of the topics that you are thinking? I know uh, one thing that quite close to your heart is uh, voting rights, and, and there may be other uh, things that you have in mind. Yeah. So. Um, let me maybe uh, explain. So, why is a political philosopher also the director of a of a of, of a center for human rights policy? So, uh, that's in a way one of the great things about my job here. So, I'm a political philosopher at a school of public policy, which means uh, public administration. You know, we are um, talking to students here. We are bringing people in who are generally concerned about public policy, about governance, about you know, improving the world, about pursuing careers for the sake of the public good, right? So that's what the Kennedy School overall does, the Woodrow Wilson School, sorry, it's, uh, uh, what is it called now? You just read, you know, it, it, it doesn't have a new name, right? right? The but, School of Public International Affairs, yes. Yes, yes, so there's that school in, <laughs> yes, so it was, it was the right decision that you changed the name and it temporarily left my mind that, so the, the <laughs> counterpart in Princeton, right, does the same. Yeah. Uh, so it's concerned about bringing people into um, uh, into. I've I've had a since my office was in 1879. All I've been looking at the at that school for, for several years. So it's uh, you know still have to have it under exactly. Under, yeah. Under, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so but that's what we do, right? So we're bringing people into careers for the public good, and um, so one of my roles here is I operate as a political philosopher, teach classes in that domain, ethics and political philosophy. Uh, but we also have a number of research centers, uh, and uh, one of them is the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy, which is concerned with, um, you know, thinking about human rights issues, uh, convening uh, gatherings around human rights issues, having fellows around human rights issues, uh, getting students who kind of keeping a presence for the human rights flame uh, on on Harvard campus and specifically the Kennedy School campus to also get students here interested in in pursuing human human rights causes. And I 
uh, have been, uh, I've had the honor of being the director of, of that center for, uh, for the last several uh, years. Um, so that's uh, that's how um, that's how I that's how I combine um, uh, the, the these these roles, um, and you know what we do in the car center. So we have had a number of major projects here. So we are we are a relatively small center, I should say, and you know you can probably imagine the human rights center. Uh, you know, it's, it, you can't expect the human rights center to be one of the bigger centers, right? It's just not in the nature of how you know such things work in at schools. But so we are, you know, we are uh, we are a fairly small center, but we have been pretty active in a in a in a number of domains and uh, specifically four uh, major programs in 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 recent times. And one is human rights rights and technology, which is where my own research. Has been going very much to kind of technological changes in the world. How does that engage human rights as we understand them coming out of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? That's one of them. Uh, we have gotten pretty invested in matters of uh, racial justice. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights is very strong on uh, on on matters of racial justice by formulating ideas about anti-discrimination in the first two articles of of this document before you even get a right to life in article three, you have already two articles talking about various kinds of discrimination. Uh, and you know, for nonetheless in the human rights world, this is not always taken as seriously as it should. And also the car center hasn't always taken it as seriously as we should. So we have made it, we have made it a big theme in the last couple of years, racial justice also. Uh, and then uh, the third uh, topic is, uh, uh, is uh, nonviolent resistance, which is a particular line of inquiry uh, pursued by my colleague Erica Chenoweth, who is a, um, a world authority on nonviolent resistance, so how it works and why it normally works better than violent resistance. So that's uh, uh, part three, topic three. Uh, and then the voting rights issue that you mentioned is actually then part of the fourth topic that we have been working on. So this has been an inquiry, a line, a line of work that we have been conducting in the over the last couple of years, and it's called reimagining rights and responsibilities in the United States and the states. And it's a an effort uh, uh, led um, by so my, myself as virtue of being the director of the center, but then also by John Shaddock, uh, who is a major figure in the in the human rights world, as a senior fellow here and a and a, a large and very talented group of students. And we are producing. Um, more than a dozen reports kind of taking a snapshot, a selfie of the rights situation in the United States across a broad, a broad range of domains and voting rights is one of them. So, uh, so it was motivated by the perception that under the Trump administration, uh, rights and also responsibilities didn't count for as much as certainly not for as much as they should. And so this was an effort of actually taking stock and now also an effort to articulate, to reimagine, you know, what needs to be, what can be a better way of going about that. And yeah, voting rights is, uh, is among them, right? So um, you see, uh, you know, there's a, this is, uh, this is a very American story, uh, voting rights oppression. I mean, you know, this is really very much the legacy of slavery that merged into um, uh, a history of uh, racism, race, racial discrimination about simply keeping people out of the voting, out, out away from voting, right? Making it difficult for people to vote uh, one way or another. So voter, voter oppression, right? So in all sorts of ways um, to make it, you know, make it hard to come to the polls. I mean, these days that's what it is, right? To make it hard to come to the polls, to have all sorts of requirements to, you know, to make sure that you are, that's, that's to make it difficult, right? These are 
redistricting is an, is another case, right? It's too gerrymandering, to dilute votes. And so that's that's one area where really the active life of democracy is very much undermined through efforts of um, of channeling power away from some people towards other people. So that's just one part of the of this uh, of this reimagining project that we that we do. Yeah, and Professor Riza, in your voting rights report from reimagining rights and responsibilities in the United States, one of your mm -hmm. policy recommendations was to remove and abolish the Electoral College. Um, in fact, mm -hmm. your work states that, quote, the Electoral College presents a major impediment to free and fair elections. Um, and this mm -hmm. idea is not entirely new, as there was also a policy mm -hmm. question asked of candidates during the Democratic primaries, with President Joe Biden um, then saying that he was not open to the removal of the Electoral College. <clears throat> and Vice President Kamala Harris saying that she was open to it. Um, what would you say are the major ethical arguments to keeping the Electoral College? And would you define the Electoral College as being unjust? So the, um, the major ethical argument in favor of uh, the Electoral College. So, you know, so I mean, of course, the, the Electoral College, so one, one thing, there's, there's the particular institution, the Electoral College, the group of people, the group of electors from each state, right, that are, uh, that are doing, you know, things in this, in this process from election day to inauguration that in the past never mattered terribly much for people. And this year, it was a pretty intense, intense stretch. Uh, so there's, there's that particular group and the institution that we have them. Uh, and then there's this, the underlying principle of that, uh, that to my mind, is actually uh, the more interesting uh, one or the even more interesting one, namely that in the United States we are uh, voting for the president in a way that amounts to aggregating results at a state level. We are counting one state at a time. Um, and, um, you know, that's a key feature of the American system, right? That for most of these, I mean, the states have, a lot of discretion there, but the way most states, almost all states handle that is that for each state, um, that's a first past the poll system, right? If, you, if one candidate gets 51% and the other one gets 49, then the one with the 51 is getting all the electoral votes uh, from, from there, right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's very much a, a, a state-based system of counting votes. Um, how is that justified? Well, um, you know, when Joe Biden says he would rather not touch that, then of course, one one bit of wisdom, and I'm not sure whether this can be cast as an ethical consideration, but certainly it's a bit of political wisdom. It would be a it would be a major change, right? And a major change also has ways of mobilizing the other side. And so, you know, especially Joe Biden as somebody who's coming in as a as, you know somebody who wants to build bridges and you know major institutional changes is something that he doesn't like for that reason. So in a way, continuity, I guess, has a prima face, has some prima facie pull. Um, the main argument for doing it this way, and you know, at the end of the day, I think it's not a good one, but since you know you asked what could one say here, it is it is a way, and you know, Mitch McConnell actually said something about this almost in passing at some point. He said, you know, if we are doing away with the electoral college, one thing that this implies. Uh, is that uh, a lot of small rural states uh, are just not going to matter terribly much in the process, right? So you can, and that in a way is the motivation, right? So it's a state-based system. It's a, it's distinctly and an, it's an, it's best understood as an effort to keep 
the relative political relevance of large states, start, states with large populations in check, right? And so, uh, so that the, you know, the, the heartland, you know, the, with, where, you know, people who often feel like they are flyover country and don't want to feel this way, so that these guys are kept, that they keep political relevance. You know? But of course, you know, what this effectively means is there's bizarre things happening just in the in, in, in American uh, elections, namely that most of the country doesn't matter at all in, uh, for election campaigns. You know, in here in Massachusetts, nothing happens except fundraising on the street, you know, where people ask you whether you want to give some money for vote for campaigning in Ohio, right? It's just because it's a foregone conclusion, you know, that in Massachusetts, a Republican presidential contender cannot win. Similar in California, right? I mean, even though, you know, that's actually, there's more Republican voters in, in California than in any other state, right? I, you know, read somewhere. And why is that? Well, because there's so many people living in California, right? But there's no serious interest in campaigning in California because there is even more uh, voters for the Democratic Party and they reliably go for the Democratic candidates than recent times, right? And, and so, um, you know, at the end of the day, so I think this consideration about keeping these smaller ag you know, agricultural, maybe ag rural, if that's the right word here, states, you know, keeping them in more in power is, is not really winning the day because it, it means that, the, you know, the vote, the one person voting in California or New York, right, counts for so much less uh, than a person in, in the so-called swing states, right, where then all the action is in Ohio and Pennsylvania and, you know, in the future, it's also going to be in Georgia. And, and that's kind of a really, that's, a, that's not what the popular vote, you know, what the, the people choosing a president should be about. And, you know, Donald Trump did not just lose this last election by an enormous margin, right? I mean, yeah, he got 74 million, but the other guy got 7 million more. That's an enormous margin by American electoral standards. He also lost the popular vote in the previous election, right? So, uh, so he never he never won the popular vote, and that's the that's the kind of thing that becomes possible through this voting by by aggregating state results, yeah, and. Um, and and that I think for the 21st century doesn't make sense. Even though I mean I see polls the other way, more political than philosophical. But I think all things considered, we just need need to move beyond that if politically feasible. Uh, Professor Heiser, if I may just push back a little bit about that, that argument mm. to praise the uh, devil's mm. advocate for supporting the the electoral college. Mm. I, I mean the system is sort of designed, as you said. Uh, to make sure mm -hmm. that the less populous states, the more rural states have a voice heard uh, in mm -hmm. uh, an election. And I suppose uh, they did achieve that in 2016, right? In, in the sense that uh, because of the, these states' existence, because of those voters voicing their opinions, uh, they, they eventually elected their president, Trump, and Trump uh, rightfully so brought up their grievances that wouldn't have been brought up had we uh, looked at the popular vote and, and sort of saw everything as uh, doing just fine. So I, I guess my question would be, what is true, truly defined as equal or, or justice here? Because you said if we, we are under the electoral college system, that would mean a person in California has sort of, you know, quote unquote, less weight in their votes than someone in, in uh, a contention state like Ohio. But one could also say the coastal elites of California or Massachusetts already have more wealth or more influence in media or politics in other ways. And if you don't really compensate that for in some way for the, uh, the 
uh, small time voters in some of those rural states, then, then they wouldn't be able to, to be heard. So uh, one of my friends kept saying that maybe we should do it by, by taxation. You know, the, the Massachusetts contributes so much more taxation. Kentucky gets so much federal subsidy. So Kentucky shouldn't be determined the faith of this country. But, but it seems that uh, we're trying to even things out, right? Yeah, we're, we're trying to even things out. Um, now consider though, uh, so the people who don't matter much in the process um, are, are not just uh, you know the, the liberals in Kentucky and the liberals in Mississippi and the liberals in, in uh, Wyoming. It's also the Republicans, the conservatives in the more rural areas of Massachusetts, right? I mean, if you you know, I mean, you know, every, every, of course, there's, there's the blue states, right, but just like there's the red states, but the, the micro analysis is always more complex, right, so in red states, you often have an urban rural divide, you, you know, you have city dwellers who are every bit as liberal as people in, uh, in, in New York, but then, of course, you know, in, in Massachusetts, I, you know, I think the number of Trump voters here was also something, I think it was something like 40 percent, 35, 40 percent, and that's, you know, that then we're talking about quite a substantial number of people that don't, you know, they don't primarily live, you know, in Cambridge and Somerville, but many of them do live in Boston and certainly the further out you go. I mean, there's, of course, there's millions of people who voted for Trump in Massachusetts. They never counted. Uh, they won't count for a Republican. You know, nobody comes here and speaks, you know, makes campaigns for them. And again, uh, the state with, with uh, the most, uh, the, the single state with the most Republican voters is California, you know, and, and uh, you know, just because there's so many people. So, and they also, they, you know, they, they, so the, the, if we change the system, let's think about what that means, right? Then, then basically everybody needs to be campaigned to, right? So everybody needs to be spoken to. We need to actually think about policy, policies uh, you know, we, we don't have, now we are basically thinking, okay, what needs to be said so that people in Pennsylvania, you know, the several 10,000 swing votes there, right? So what needs to be said to them? Um, and we are thinking about, you know, the, you know, in Georgia, you know, what brings, you know, the Republicans are thinking it's like, you know, we just need several 10,000 here, not you know, 20,000 is probably enough, right? And, um, you know, what to say to them? And, and, and that's, for, for a huge state, a country like ours with 330 million people, when that should not be how people think. They should be thinking, what makes sense on balance? They should be thinking nationally, what makes sense on balance and really campaigning to everybody and for everybody and everybody you know, counts for one. It's not like people in Kentucky fall through the cracks, right? It's just, you know, the idea is, uh, you know, uh, campaigning should be towards everybody and rather than towards these particular swing voters in, in particular pockets of the country, you know. And shifting the conversation a little bit, Professor mm. Riza, you, you say that your current research is looking at um, technology mm. and how this intersects with your previous work. Um, so this is increasingly important as digital platforms like social media sites continue to expand and to be able to shape our society, whether through increasing polarization or increasing social activist movements. Um, how do the ways that social media and media in general have been able to drive social activist movements intersect with traditional philosophical traditions? Do you see these philosophical traditions being modified due to the impacts of technology? Yeah, so um, I'm not sure it's, so for, for philosophical, 
I'm not sure it's so specifically the social media for the philosophy. And of course, the social media are hugely relevant for you know how the public sphere works. And you know, in the United States, you you have had a long-term decline of public broadcasting, and you know the private sector is moving in and finds it more profitable uh, to cater towards the uh, you know the subjective news needs of particular segments of the population. Social media are creating all these possibilities of people living in their uh, echo chambers and there's no balancing from from public media so all of, all of that is you know there are polit- there are changes in the political sphere and to that extent of course also are then challenges for uh, political philosophers but in a way there's a you know there's a bigger picture here right so we live um, in a century of an, of enormous technological innovation to such an extent that there's a lot of talk about a thing called the intelligence explosion, the singularity, right? Where, um, you know, this comes from work on general artificial intelligence, right? So the idea is that we are approximating uh, the human intelligence performance across a broad range. And once we manage to generate this kind of general intelligence, that kind of general intelligence will be able to produce, um, you know, a general intelligence somewhat smart, smarter than it, right? Just like we, you know, would have managed and to produce something slightly smarter than us. And so it would produce something slightly smarter than it. Uh, and then it will kind of go from there with potentially quick, quicker and larger jumps. And that would be the intelligence explosion, the singularity, right? And, and you know, we, we, we're not really sure uh, when this will happen, if this will ever happen. Um, but uh, a lot of people who um, build these things. I think that it's. Uh, I mean, we're not. We are not now technologically very in terms of engineering capacities, coding capacities. We're not now close to this. But if you think about the 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 speed of innovation, right? There might be a number of breakthroughs as the as the years go on. And so, a lot of people think that by the end of the century we will have something like that, right? And so, so that's a major motivating thing for me as a political and that will change the work done for political philosophers uh you know then then we will share uh, you know then we'll, we'll live technology in completely new ways right we'll, we'll uh, you know these days if you don't like your iphone you turn it off and throw it away right so nobody will submit a human rights complaint or any kind of moral complaint against you but if technology becomes much more sophisticated it's not easily turned off has internal updating learning processes and and who knows what can happen else can we understand so little about how exactly consciousness how that relates to bodies and so you know we might be in for mighty surprises there that we will share social and political spaces with uh, what basically are alien intelligences that are still somehow connected to us because we created them right so so that's kind of at the you know at the end of this um, you know this tunnel that we are in now um, of development, but then yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of prospects are kind of in the medium run already. When uh, you know the way technology might substantially change the face of societies, you know how many people are really still needed for the workforce, and if they're not needed for the workforce, what kind of political role are they going to have? You know how is ownership structures going to change? Data ownership is going to be. Uh, ever more important how should we the you know these days data ownership is basically regulated as in whoever can gather them you know keeps them you know the platforms and that's probably not good so we need to have new thinking about data ownership and then there's any number of things around technology um you know to come back to the the racial justice themes right uh, um you know at princeton uh, benjamin uh, as you know has been working on this also a bunch of people have been working on this just to point out that 
as we introduce technology uh, and we automatize lots of things, we are still working uh, with the data produced, generated by our highly biased and discriminatory past, right? And so that has all sorts of striking phenomena. Uh, you know, algorithms can only work with what data they have, and they tend to be algorithms. You know, there's the uh, there's a problem also in the creation of technology that it's too many men and too many white people, and so lacking same problem, lacking perspectives, right? And so that's that's around us how this technology is already used, um, how it's changing. The economy, Shoshana Zuboff uh, has written this fabulous book called Surveillance Capitalism, that uh, this whole mode of capitalism that we are in right now depends basically on data gathering. And, uh, you know, so constantly as we go through our day, we are emanating data through anything that we do electronically, including this conversation here and everything that's recorded electronic that emanates data. And so, you know, she thinks about that. It's a, basically it's a complete alienation of our human lives because it is used as a data emanating mechanism. So that that's a whole range um, that is really uh, substantially enriching and changing the agenda of political philosophy going forward. Professor Hayes, just to quickly touch on this part, because uh, as you said, researchers like Princeton Professor Ruha Benjamin see the future of technology as very capable of perpetuating uh, the current biases, discriminatory structures in American society. Uh, since technology itself, as they say, is not unbiased. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on this because I, I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and, and uh, technologists and I asked them about technology. They would say, they would often say technology itself is neutral. It is a tool. It depends on how people use it. And, and some people abuse technology to do bad things, but technology itself is neutral. Uh, and obviously in the artificial intelligence community, there has been so much debate from the scientists themselves, they say, oh, is it just learning the data set and therefore they're a little bit racist because you know all the data set is kind of unevenly collected or do you have to overcorrect for that bias and so on? But I guess the question would be, do you see technology as a neutral thing, as just a tool? Or do you think there are much more political implications beyond that that we need to consider? So, I think it is very important uh, to distinguish between two statements here, namely, namely first is um, uh, technology is neutral, uh, and the second is technology has different uses or different affordances, as, as it's sometimes said. Yeah. Um, uh, so technology is not neutral. So the, the idea that technology is just a set of tools uh, is something that we like to tell ourselves in order to kind of increase individual autonomy or something like that. But, uh, uh, you know, the idea that technology is just a set of tools as in you may or may not use it, uh, you know, that's, that's an illusion and it's an illusion already on the, um, you know, on the first person level, right? So if you think about, uh, you know, how readily can you actually live without your smartphone, right? So, I mean, this is from a, from a, teacher standpoint, I mean, it's impossible these days to, to get people to turn away their technology, right? And, and that's just simply because for, you know, for people your generation, um, you know, Tiger and Marco, you know, you have, these things are basically part of how you see the world, right? So being without it, we might as well ask you to leave a little finger outside, right? This is just not what we do. And so, uh, so it's not, it's not entirely optional, right? So we are, we are obsessed with technology, we use it, it is not practically speaking, 
optional, you know, it's uh, we are giving into a lot of pressure and what what on habit. And so in that sense, it's not neutral. Um, and it's not just a set of tools, but then also uh, it's not neutral in the sense that if you think about, um, you know, the possibilities of being a human in the world, that's actually one of the major insights also from this whole range of philosophy technology. What it means to be a human in the world is a function of technology, right? You approach the world through technology, you shape the world through technology, but that also means that's the world you live in and it also shapes you, right? So technology is intensely political in that regard. And, you know, if you talk to the various generations of your families, you talk to your parents, you talk to your grandparents, right? Several gen, they all relate to technology very differently. And it's also, you know, a lot to do with the fact that they, the way they are in the world, to speak a little bit phenomenologically here, uh, is a function of technology, right? So we should never, we should, if we, I think it's naive to think of technology just as tools because it just gives us an illusion of control uh, individually and collectively that it, it loses sight of the fact of the extent to which technology kind of breathes back at us and makes us who we are, you know? And one of your well-known contributions to the field is this idea of the grounds of justice, um, including divisions like membership to states and um, subjection to trade. Um, however, technology itself is not defined as its own ground of justice in your work. Where do you think technology will fall in the conversation of grounds of justice? Do you see it eventually becoming you know, its own ground itself or is it kind of fit into the other grounds that already um, in your work? So I, I, I don't think that technology as such would be, uh, would make sense as a ground of justice. Again, these are contexts in which we relate to each other somehow are, you know, in which certain questions about sharing things out that become jointly possible are uh, arise. And so technology, I think if you want to find a place for technology there, and of course, that's a very interesting question to me also is, Basically, for each of in each of these grounds, in each of these contexts, there is certain certain goods, certain you know, in this line of work we call them distribuenda, things that are to be shared out, right? And so, what they are, and you know, what the world is that is constituted by them, all of that is determined by uh, by technology. Um, you know, the, the extent, I mean, it's, it's quite possible that this is not a good enough answer. So, um, you know, as you know, this whole domain of, I'm actually this semester for the first time teaching a class on philosophy of technologies, this, this area has completely captured my attention. So it is quite possible that maybe at some point in the future, I, or not too far in the future, that I will have to write another book with on and justice and then somewhere technology in the, in the title, since maybe, maybe there's more thorough revisions uh, at stake, but I, I certainly, I, I, I genuinely believe that uh, this century is a century of technological innovation that we somehow need to get right. Also, in terms of dealing with climate change, and if we are not getting it right, then, then the, then the discontinuity from what human rights has been, human life has been so far, it's just going to be overwhelming. Uh, Professor Kaiser, if I may, please don't take it the wrong way, but I, I. I, I... I do want to ask a somewhat provocative question because I think um, uh, here at Policy Punch, we've interviewed uh, a, a lot of normative thinkers on, on issues of uh, uh, mm -hmm. technology. And I think most people, I mean, or all everybody who has come on the show, they all agree that, that the, the, this set of 
premises that we've kind of presented, you know, technology has its own harm. It's sometimes biased, it enhances, perpetuates certain discriminatory structures and we need to work on it. So mm -hmm. uh, part of me is thinking, so what, what, what is there furthermore to, to study or, or what is the moral tension or the ethical tension and, and uh, what, what do we need to do? I mean, it seems that we do know how to make things better. Is it just because the special interests, the corporate interests don't want to do this? Or is it because uh, there are still scholarly debates that we still need to figure out? So uh, I'm trying to understand the, the, the point of tension here a little bit better. The point of tension between what and what? Well, between in, in the sense like um, what we feel like on, on issues of um, the bias of technology or the the grounds mm. of justice of, of technology, what, what constitutes a just technology in, in some way. Mm. Um, so let me maybe say, um, uh, I think a lot of a lot of design of technology is driven by uh, and micro and macro are the same really is driven by problem solving challenges, right? So, um, you know, your, you guys or your peers taking classes in, in engineering and computer science, that's what one does in classes like that. One has challenges and one solves problems, right? So just like in math, one solves problem sets, right? So there is, uh, there is, in, there is design challenges that need to be solved and, and that are inherently very rewarding, right? And so here at Harvard, we, for a number of years now, I've had a new teaching initiative called Embedded Ethics. And the idea there, so it's basically drawing on what I just said, right? That, uh, that you know, students in engineering, computer science, they're fascinated by problem solving challenges and that's what they wanna do. And then at the end of the day, they're losing sight of pretty straight, straightforward ethical questions. You know, what kind of impact does your technology have on the people who are using it? What kind of impact does it have on the people who are next to the people who are using it? What kind of impact does the introduction of this technology have in a society where maybe not everybody can use it, or what does it what does it do, right? So, um, and so they they realized so their students weren't asking these questions on their own. These the instructors there didn't really feel that they were uh, that that was their strongest uh, their their forte to ask these questions. So I said, why don't we just bring in some philosophers who do, who do that, and they're embedding that into this this teaching, right? So. So that's a, that's the that's the micro level, right? Where um, where um, uh, the uh, you know student where 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 students are being led to think more about uh, the ethical dimensions of technology. Something similar is happening also. I mean, the, this design focus, challenge focus of technology design is also happening at the macro level. So if you Think about you know what is Apple doing, what is Facebook doing, what is Elon Musk doing? You know what are all these companies up to? What they want to market things, and they are fascinated by these new products. And when they if they can sell them, they want them. And you know we are thinking about smart cities, and you know there's just a lot of just people you know that is fascinated by what's doable. Uh, and this fascination with what's doable then often carries them away thinking, okay, what are we getting into here, right? So just like at the micro level, at the teaching level, so the university said, okay, we need these guys, the engineers of the future, we need them to be thinking about, um, you know, the, these impact questions, ethics questions right away. So, so at the societal level, we also need to do that more. And, you know, especially in the United States where uh, regulation in that whole IT AI domain is there's very little. You know, the Trump administration wasn't interested in that. So, so we are basically leaving it to industry to do, 
you know what they what they like and to add the thinking the the ethics thinking to that as they like and we need to have a lot more you know government government leadership there and also just a, a lot of um, so just like in a way writ large to what we are doing with embedded ethics uh, at the teaching level we need much more of because you know otherwise we're just kind of you know we're in this frenzy of creating new things uh, and we just need to ask you know what are we doing here where's society going and that we are you know surveillance capitalism is a great example right so um Actually, I mean, let me try to motivate that somewhat differently. If you compare China to the United States, right, as far as change is concerned, yeah, maybe that's a good way of thinking about this. China, um, in uh, you know, ten years ago, a lot of people thought uh, that China, the com the Communist Party in China, was you know eventually what's you know long term on its way out because the growth of the middle class and all of that, just like in many other places would create a new kind of political awareness and people wouldn't want to put up with the with the uh, Chinese Communist Party anymore, right? So that is dramatically not what's been happening because the Chinese Communist Party has basically updated its governance system to a high-tech 21st century version involving a lot of surveillance, a lot of control, uh, and it's proven itself for that in, the, in, in fighting the virus, right? Just as the you know, Chinese economy grew by the end of 2020, um, so it's a remarkable success story through getting this technological upgrade, right? Its governance system has been upgraded uh, to 21st century standards. So what's been happening in the United States? Well, um, you know, we need to think about what's the future here and what we currently have precisely is what we got into in the last, in that same period that China was building this technological powerhouse as part of its uh, party, we got into surveillance capitalism. Right, surveillance capitalism is how we upgraded liberal democracy, right? And so that's Tiger, that's what I meant, right? So that is that just happened to us, that uh, you know Google and Facebook, you know, they are they became wealthy not by selling you devices, they became wealthy by taking your data, right? And yes. and yes. and you know, and and there is now a little bit more debate about this, and much to, of the credit does go to Shoshana Zuba for that, but that's what I mean, right? So this is just happening unless we keep a close eye on it, you know. So, so to push that idea a little bit further, I know we're nearing the end of our interview, but you mentioned this phrase singularity and singularity mm -hmm. is uh, this hypothetical point in time at which technological growth would become uncontrollable, irreversible, resulting in this unforeseeable changes to human civilization. That's how Wikipedia defines it. And, and uh, do you see that happening soon? I mean, by soon, I mean... 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, will we get there at some point? Because some people would say AI right now is not that smart. Some people say, oh, AI right now yeah. is really smart. Um, are you optimistic, pessimistic on that front? So um, the way I think about this is, uh, so it, it, um, given what my place in the academic universe is, it would be presumptuous of me to have an independent opinion on that. Um, but uh, so what I, what I will say is, um, you know, we should, so, so and, you know, and I know especially a lot of many computer scientists say that, right? When philosophers are thinking about, or others think about these long-term questions, they say, ah, there's so many things that are already upon us, right? So, and I, I, I understand, I get it. It's not a competition. This is not, we, we don't want to think about singularity and what it might bring by way of excluding or to the detriment of issues about how technology is used in ways that enhance and perpetuate discrimination of the competition. We just need to have a range of questions with different 
time uh, horizons. We need to, you know, think of them at the same time, not each one of us at the same time, but they all need to be on the agenda somehow, right? That's that's how I think about that. And um, and then, you know, again, a lot of people who build technology are optimistic that this will be done this century. And also, if you think about what they're actually doing, uh, they're using actually, you know, the way this the neural the neural network approach. All of basically what they're doing is they're emulating the brain, right? And so you can see once they start doing that, and you know, the human brain emerged through evolution, right? That's our best understanding of the human brain. And so once they emulated and silicon and other materials right that seems like a pretty promising way of doing that maybe maybe not in the next 30 years but we my from a from a philosopher's point of view the point is simply we need to be prepared we need to take these scenarios conditionally seriously but you know i will not go on record and say you know definitely this is going to happen because there's nothing in my training and my competence that will allow me to say that Professor Kessler, we've uh, had such a long conversation already. I, I uh, as we gradually wrap up, I am um, again reminded about how many books you've written. So I suppose one question would be for one of our listeners to to want to learn more about your work. How could they do that? And also, uh, if you were to recommend them a, a sequence of order of reading your work, or uh, <laughs> which book should they uh, start with? <laughs> ah, okay. Um... Well, I, I mean, if somebody actually were facing that particular question, I would, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I would say so. I, I would say my the, the recent thing on justice is probably, um, you know, at least the, the first two parts, right? So there, there's these three parts that are reasonably independent of each other. The first is about uh, what what political philosophy is all about. The second is about the this historical narrative about dis discourses around justice. And then the third part is this more analytical part about the details of the grounds of justice approach. I think the, the first and the second are pretty straightforwardly uh, accessible. Uh, and so um, I, I would say that's, uh, that's, probably, that's probably the best way to start. Awesome. Uh, and uh, before I ask you our, our last question, the second to last question would be, what are some of the questions on your mind right now? I mean, that you're currently working on? What are some of the questions that you encourage our listeners or students uh, to start thinking about, uh, to, to learn about, that, that you consider to be the urgent ones? Well, it uh, comes back to technology really, right? So um, I, uh, you know, everybody should acquire as much fluency in thinking about technology as possible since that is going to, um, that's going to uh, shape the world, right? So um, get interested in technology, background reflection on technology. You know, there is, but you know, Rua Benjamin's work, for example, is super accessible, right? So reading, reading things like this, uh, um, Sophia Noble algorithm of algorithms of of um, oppression is uh, super accessible. Kathy O'Neill's uh, weapons of math, math uh, destruction, right, is accessible. So for people to take an interest in 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 that, I think that's. Uh, that would be uh, so because these are the stations uh, for the future of the world. That uh, and you know we we can't just have people involved in that who build technology because they build what they want to build, and that might not be what we want to see in the future as what shapes our world. You know. So so last question, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, 
what mm. would be your your punchline for this interview? We we talked so much. So, <laughs> well, uh, since uh, since today is uh, February twelfth, uh, and yes. it is the the second to the last day of the impeachment travel <laughs> for, uh, trial for Donald Trump, my policy punchline is that I hope for the good of this country. And I hope for the good of the Republican Party that uh, that they will actually find him guilty, uh, as uh, we have been so uh, as has been so amply proven that he is. Uh, I don't think this is going to happen. But my policy punchline is that this country, you know, this needs to happen uh, for this country to come back together. Otherwise, I think these uh, all these tensions that we've been seeing, you know, build around one man's lies and. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna take us to a good place. So that's. I know this had nothing to do with the conversation we've had so far, but it's, <laughs> it's flowing out of the rest of the day. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, Professor Hesa, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. I. I uh, I know Marco and I sent you a long list of questions, but we probably only got through half of them. It's already been an hour and a half, so I don't want to take more of your time. It's just uh, uh, so many more uh, normative and moral, ethical. Uh, points of tensions and debates that we can go into. So maybe another time that that uh, when when you have uh, your fifth and sixth book about uh, uh, with with the words on injustice in the on technological justice or something right. when it comes okay. out. So uh, yeah. thank you, thank you again for for joining us. Thanks for having me. And, and Marco, thanks so much for hosting the the show with me today. Yeah, no problem. Uh, well, and this concludes this episode of uh, Policy Punchline. Uh, please follow us on uh, policypunchline.com, iTunes, Spotify. You may watch this video uh, on, on uh, policypunchline.com or our YouTube channel. Uh, that was our interview with Matthias Hesse. He is a professor of philosophy and public administration at Kennedy School and also the director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard. So a fascinating conversation. We hope that you may continue to learn about his work uh, and follow us. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.